Welcome to Insights Now, a series of conversations designed to shine a light of clarity on the complex world of investing. We've entitled our second season Asset Class. After years of very good returns, broad indices of US stocks and bonds look expensive relative to history. This reality both limits future returns and increases the risk of a market correction. Investors who want to enhance future returns or reduce risk may need to adopt a more sophisticated approach, looking at different sectors and styles within US equities and bonds, and looking at other assets to diversify their portfolios. And that's what Asset Class is all about. In each episode, we look at an area of investing and speak to an expert in this area. The last few years have not been easy for investors in US value stocks. The Russell 1000 Value Index is comprised of stocks within the Russell 1000 Index, with lower price-to-book ratios and lower historical and expected growth rates. Relative to the Russell 1000 Growth Index, it has higher exposure to financial and industrial stocks and lower exposure to technology and consumer discretionary stocks. These relative exposures have hurt value investors in recent years, with the Russell 1000 Growth Index beating the Value Index in each of the last four years and by an astonishing 35.7% in 2020. This being said, value stocks are now trading at close to their lowest P.E. ratios relative to growth stocks in the last 20 years. So perhaps 2021 is a time when investors should take a closer look at value. To help us do just that, I'm very excited to be joined by Claire Hart, who serves as lead portfolio manager of the Equity Income Fund here at J.P. Morgan Asset Management. It's worth noting that at the end of 2020, this fund had outperformed its benchmark, the Russell 1000 Value Index, over the last one, three, five and ten year periods. So, Claire, welcome to Insights Now. Hi, David. Thanks for having me. I guess my first question for you, Claire, is simply, do you regard yourself as a value investor? Uh, I would say yes, I am. But I would say maybe the caveat to that is, uh, for me, value doesn't always mean, it's not the cheapest thing in the market. Value doesn't mean necessarily the lowest PE, so to speak, that you can find. Um, My bias is a value investor, but I also have a quality bias. That being said, value as a style has lagged in recent years. Why do you think this is the case? Uh, you know, it's true. I mean, value has definitely lagged uh, growth um, in the past years. You know, I think part of this really gets back to the idea of EO money, you know, in the United States, globally, it's basically cheap or free. Um, and all of the optionality goes with that. And so you don't necessarily have to have earnings or cash flow, it seems, as long as you have lots of cheap money available. Um, to sort of uh, invest in the hope that goes with it. Um, so if money's very available to borrow um, and to invest, um, even when you don't necessarily have an earning stream or cash flow stream that people can see, I think um, people feel like they can, you know, take advantage again of the kind of the cheap uh, rates that are out there um, and put it to work on something that has, you know, lots of quote unquote optionality for earnings in the future. And then names that actually, the types of things I tend to invest in, the names that actually are generating earnings right now, cash flow right now, um, it's it's almost like it's too boring and it might be almost, you know, even though it's consistent, um, the growth might appear to just be too low compared to, you know, what they're hoping to get in the out years from other, some of these other, you know, high growth areas where, again, um, there's not a lot of evidence quite yet about earnings or cash flow. Do you think this is going to change over the next few years? And if so, why? Well, I think for some companies, you know, I, every every company, I feel like every company eventually has to prove itself. And for investors, that generally translates to every company has to eventually have some earnings and free cash flow. And so for some companies that really 
um, have kind of that, you know, whatever that opportunity, that product, that service, um, that ways for companies to save money for those companies that really have that, they will continue to grow. But I think, uh, you know, there will come a point of reckoning for some companies where the optionality, even if the money is to invest in them is sort of cheap or free, that optionality doesn't manifest itself. And then I think there'll, there'll be some names that sort of shake out as, as not really having been, um, the growth, so to speak, that people would have hoped. Do you pay more attention to stock selection or sector allocation? Uh, I would definitely say as a stock investor. And that really, you know, obviously you can look at the sector weights that we have, but for us, it's really around every stock and how we're going to make money in each stock. And that percolates up to what our ultimate sector weights are in the portfolio. Understood. But you've frequently in recent years had an overweight to financials. Can you tell me a little bit more about the role these stocks play in your fund? So, you know, the reason that we have as many names, I would say, and as much of the portfolio allocated to financials as we do, is because we see lots of different ways to sort of parse the risk uh, and to make money. And so broadly, you know, I guess at a high level for financials, the risks are related to the yield curve uh, and regulatory risk. And then for most financials, there's an element of how does credit do, credit and credit losses. And so when we look at the financials, broadly speaking, in the market, those three things, you know, simply um, the regulatory framework, um, the yield curve, and credit, how those three either work or change themselves, um, that's going to make, it'll have a very different return profile for either an asset manager or a regional bank or a, a credit card company. And so we're trying to make money, you know, again, if I had perfect 2020, you know, crystal ball into the future, I'd know exactly the way the yield curve was going to move. And I'd know exactly which regulatory framework was going to be most helpful. And I'd know what would happen with credit, but we don't. And so we try and, you know, allow for what could happen with those different variables at all different ways by having different companies in different sectors trying to make money in different ways, depending on um, how those risks play out. Technology is, of course, now the biggest sector of the U.S. equity market. How do you feel about technology in your fund? So I would say we, you know, for the most part, we do have, you know, names that you would look at and say, well, that's definitely a quote unquote technology name. It's in the technology sector. That's what the GICs, you know, um, allocation is and that sort of thing. Classification is. Um, but what I find really exciting about tech kind of right now is that, you know, technology, the way to make money from it is not necessarily just by names that fall into that tech technology sector. What I mean by that is, I think it's really, it's an exciting time for all companies because the kind of um, innovation and technology now has gotten to the point where lots of companies can use it to improve their business model, uh, serve customers better and make more money. And so, you know, Deer, for example, right? It's a, it's a, you know, a farm company, they make implements for farming. And so you think to yourself, how could that possibly have anything to do with technology? Well, their precision ag technology on their tractors, it was what really, um, you know, helps farmers decide how far apart do we plant, how much fertilizer, um, you know, what kind of a weed killer do we need for this, and to do it with great precision. And using technology uh, is really helping them deliver better product to their customers. Uh, or someone like Eaton, for example, they talk about using technology for um, factory digitalization and enhancing productivity. And so my point is, even in these areas where you don't necessarily think of technology, we're actually at the point now where technology is bleeding itself into other sectors in a way that 
all companies can use it to enhance returns and help their customers. One criteria for inclusion in the equity income fund is having a dividend yield going in of at least 2%. With dividend yields falling, is that reducing your flexibility on where you can invest? You know, it actually, in a kind of a backwards way, it doesn't reduce the flexibility. Um, it just reminds us to be flexible. And what I mean by that is, you know, I've run um, this strategy for almost 20 years with the firm. There's always times where there are parts of the market where there is a dearth of yield. Um, and, and then there are parts of the market where there's a tremendous amount of yield. And so for us, though, the idea of a tremendous amount of yield is usually something that you know, doesn't maybe have as much capital appreciation or opportunity to grow. And so we have always had to be flexible moving around between sectors to find, um, again, not just yield, because we're not trying to just deliver yield to people. We want yield plus capital appreciation. And so it's really kind of that holistic approach. Um, and so I, you know, again, we, we try and be picky about how we invest, but the goal is not to deliver just the yield to our investors. It's yield plus capital appreciation. So, you know, in, interest rates broadly are so low. Um, it doesn't mean that investors necessarily have, you know, have to settle for less, so to speak, um, because it's, it's yield plus capital appreciation for us. More companies in recent years have been increasing stock buybacks as a way of returning cash to shareholders. Given your focus on dividends, how do you feel about this? Well, I'm always happy if our companies, you know, we certainly, you know, we have our dividend requirement and I feel like it's their commitment to us to pay the dividend. But I don't agree with companies that say, you know, we return money to shareholders by dividends and buybacks. I believe firmly returning money to shareholders is cash in their hand and that's the dividend. The buyback, from my perspective, I would move that over to the bucket where a company thinks about investing in M&A. So when I think about a buyback, what I want to hear is that a company has looked across the landscape and decided that reinvesting in their own shares is really the best use of their capital versus buying another company, buying uh, part of another company as an investment in their business line, or building a new factory or plant or some other investment. I think about, again, buybacks goes into, it reaches into that bucket of money that you would use for M&A um, or acquisitions. Uh, so I don't feel like it's stealing from my dividend, and it shouldn't be. And finally, what role do you see for an equity income fund in the portfolio of the average investor? I think of, you know, the way that I'm thinking, you know, we run our fund and the way we invest. I think of it as sort of a, a core holding, so to speak. You know, that being said, there's lots of ways to make money in the market. And so, you know, if I, if I consider this equity income as a core holding, there is room to add some sprinkles on top. And you could pick your flavor of sprinkles. It could be, uh, you know, a growth fund, could be technology, could be alts or, you know, direct real estate or, you know, wherever it might be. But I think of equity income as sort of a, a, a core building block, so to speak. Well, thank you for joining us, Claire. Thank you, David. And thank you for listening. And please tune in to our next episode, where I'll be joined by Shane Duffy, a member of our international equity group, to discuss allocating to international equities as the world recovers from the pandemic. This content is intended for information only based on assumptions in current market conditions and are subject to change. No warranty of accuracy is given. This content does not contain sufficient information to support investment decisions. It is not to be construed as research, legal, regulatory, tax, accounting, or investment advice. Investments involve risks. Investors should seek professional advice or make an independent evaluation before investing. The value of investments and the income from them may fluctuate including loss of capital. Past performance and yield are not indicative of current or future results. 
forecasts and estimates may or may not come to pass. Asset allocation does not guarantee investment returns and does not eliminate the risk of loss. J.P. Morgan Asset Management is the asset management business of J.P. Morgan Chase & Company and its affiliates worldwide.